This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here at Cornell and always a pleasure to talk to Thomistic Institute chapters. Um, I do regret uh, not being able to meet you all in person. It's often the best part of a Thomistic Institute visit for the lecturer is to see these incredible groups of students that are gathered all over the country um, having conversations of the kind that we're that we're going to have today. So uh, it's anyway, uh, I hope that uh, whatever I say today will encourage you in some measure in uh, the work that you're doing both in the Thomistic Institute and your, in your studies at Cornell. Um, I was invited to speak uh, in connection with this reading group on Benedict Ashley's book, which is a book I haven't read apart from the last chapter, which I read because I knew that you would have read it somewhere in the vicinity of this talk. And also so I could get a sense of, you know, who, who how you all had been thinking about the questions that uh, Father Ashley and I have in common uh, and, and pursue in some sense in common. Uh, namely, uh, what is the role of learning, thinking, and studying in a happy and flourishing human life? And how does that education, how does that practice of learning and reflection uh, connect to our lives of faith as Catholics? Uh, so in preparing the, the reading, uh, I, I didn't... I suspect, and you you can tell me in the question period whether I'm right, that he and I don't disagree on anything particularly substantive. That is, I, mean, I think if he and I were on an accrediting committee going around to different universities deciding whether what they were doing was good or not good, I think we would probably come to the similar conclusions. Uh, on the other hand, my, my, my approach to these questions is quite different than his. So what I felt inspired to do was to try to boil down in as simple a way as possible what I think is fundamental to education, especially at this particular moment, because education uh, is in a dramatic crisis at every level um, from K through 12 to undergraduate education to graduate education to research academia. And um, it's my belief that um, the, the more simply and clearly we can speak about what's fundamental, uh, the, the more effective we'll be both in advocating to others and also just in clarifying for ourselves what's possible in our given circumstances. Um, as educators like myself or as uh, teachers of ed educators, as some of you may be, or as uh, parents or future parents or future educators, or as anyone really who uh, is concerned about the way young people are shaped uh, by their community, which I think should constitute more or less everyone in the in the room. Um, so uh, let me begin by making a, uh, a philosophical distinction, which I think it is will be helpful. It's something which uh, Father Ashley's chapter inspired me to formulate. I'm not sure I've ever formulated it quite this way before, so there may be faults which you can come back at me in the question period and tell me about. So um, we often, here's my starting thesis, we often confuse goals of education 
and desirable effects of an education. So uh, that might be a bit of a confusing distinction to make goals and desirable effects. It's easier, I think, to think, especially if you have a little bit of training in Catholic moral theology, to think about uh, goals versus undesirable effects. So we have this wonderful teaching in the Catholic Church called the principle of double effect, uh, developed by uh, Aquinas especially, but drawing on Augustine as well, uh, that is used to uh, distinguish justified cases of violence for Christians. So uh, it can never be my goal to end the life of another human being, but I can have a goal of defending myself or defending another and uh, the foreseen uh, undesirable effect is that it may be that to do this, the person who is trying to hurt me or others will die. So that's the principle of double effect. There's two effects. There's a good one defending myself and there's a bad effect, um, uh, the death of a human being. And what's crucial for morality is that my goals be correct. That is my intention be to uh, defend myself and not to kill. So th this principle that I'm going to be appealing to is something like that, only it's a little more confusing. Um, but I think some examples will illustrate it. So remember, we're distinguishing a goal from a desirable effect. So education is full of situations where these are confused. Most obviously, um, it is a desirable effect that education provide us with a way to exercise our ambitions um, to, um, our, our, to provide for our families in a comfortable way, to um, create, be a part of our, our communities, our political communities, our local communities, uh, to exercise some, some influence in those communities. Um, or to, to seek out a better way of life than the one we may have come to, so social advancement of some kind or another. These are desirable effects of an education, but they're not goals of an education. Uh, the goal of education is the development of a human being uh, in, all, in all of its capacities. And if we confuse the, these effects, these side effects, with the goals, not only do we run the risk of losing the fullness of human education in terms of the development of the human capacities to know and to love, uh, we risk losing that, but we also risk losing the very thing that we're trying to seek because uh, utilitarian education, education which is aimed at social advancement, at social usefulness and so on is frequently self-undermining. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm old enough that I was in one of the first generations of people to be educated in school about computers, uh, and we had a course uh, called Computer Composition, which filled our composition credit, which involved learning by heart all of the commands of an arcane word processing system called WordPerfect, which went out of use about three or four years after 
this class in high school. And of course, which learning by heart, these commands was never the most useful thing. It was always on a template that you could put on your keyboard. This was how we used to do things in the old days. Um, or you could look it up or what have you. Um, and so that was an example where there's a desirable effect, namely that someone be able to function in the world of com computers, where uh, having that be the goal of an education actually undermines one's capacity to get it. So what we need, in fact, to exercise our ambitions is not a narrow set of skills, but a broad set of skills, uh, a set of skills that are uh, that might be properly called virtues uh, of choosing, of exercising judgment, of discerning um, what's possible in a given situation, uh, of adaptab adaptability, and all of these things are cultivated uh, by the deepest things, um, by the study of philosophy, the study of literature, the study of theology, the study of science, the study of mathematics, all of the human education cultivates these things. Um, and uh, so that's one example of a goal versus a desired effect. Here's another example. Uh, the goal, uh, I think there far, so thus far, Ashley would be right with me. This, these next are a bit more uh, critical and I'm not sure what he would say. So I think what's the goal, what's what's the point of something called critical thinking? Um, we often hear this in educational circles. The point of education is to think critically. Uh, my suspicion is that this concept is recognizable. That is, we can see people who know how to think, uh, but that on its own, it's not. Uh, a goal of education. It's not a goal of education because critical thinking is not different from thinking. And thinking is not separable from its subject matter. So for instance, try to teach someone mathematical thinking without having them do any mathematics. Or try to imagine cultivating literary thinking without actually reading any literature. Or philosophical thinking without actually doing philosophy. It's just this separation between subject matter and skill, which we find across the board, especially in K through 12 education, but also in other sectors. Um, but it's actually senseless. The way that one learns to think is by exercising one's mind on a given subject matter. And then somehow emergently other capacities to think combine and are united under the auspices of human creativity and human activity, and they open up other realms of possibility, the thing that we might call critical thinking. So critical thinking is another example of something which is a desirable effect of an education, but not properly speaking a goal of education. Uh, lastly, multiculturalism. Uh, multiculturalism, I think, is not a goal of education. It is a desirable side effect of education. And I think to see this, we can think about what, for Christians, it seems to me, is the real meat of the value of multiculturalism, which is that in uh, the Gospels, uh, it's evident that all nations are called to follow Christ. Um, and we see that at the moments in Pentecost, we see it in repeated phrases uh, from the mouth of Christ, all nations, 
And all individuals are offered the salvation of Christ. Individuals of every uh, race, ethnicity, creed, gender, etc. Everyone, every single human being is offered the salvation of Christ. And when we see a multicultural group, a multicultural community, that for us is a sign that something is going right. It's a sign that we have begun to overcome the obstacles to this kind of human unity that the gospel calls us to. And those obstacles are ethnic prejudice, racial prejudice, um, class prejudice, uh, comfort, uh, uh, all kinds of things which you can imagine uh, get in the way of us wanting to be around or to help people that are different from us, either in appearance or in behavior. So that's my third example of something which is not a proper goal of an education, but is nonetheless a desirable effect. So just to summarize for this part of my talk, there's three things which I think are not goals, but side effects, uh, desirable side effects in education. One is practicality, that is the ability to exercise one's ambitions. Uh, two, um, uh, critical thinking or thinking, as I would like to call it, and three, multiculturalism. That is that we see a diverse group of people pursuing the objects of learning um, under discussion. Okay, so when I start off in this negative way, talking about what's a side effect and what's not a goal, that ought to invite a very um, blunt, obvious question, namely, well, what what, Zena Hitz, what do you think is the goal of an education? Okay, you said what you don't think the goals are. You've said things that are commonly cons uh, confused with the goals, uh, what you're calling desirable effects, but what, 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 how can we understand in a, a relatively straightforward and simple way, a uh, communicable way, a way that is internalizable, that we can take with us in all of our educational endeavors, whatever they may be. So uh, I'm going to uh, give another short list. For some reason today was a list day. I don't always give talks of this form, but this is how it came out today. So I, I gave you three side effects, and then I'm going to give you, looks like five goals uh, <laughs> or five characterizations of the same goal, however you want to put it. Um, <coughs> These are, I think, uh, basic principles for education and basic principles that can guide us in um, discerning both what's good and what's bad in the current situa uh, educational situation so that we can work in whatever ways possible to reform, to renew, to uh, rebuild um, our educational structures, which are in such a dramatic crisis. Okay. So what are these few principles that I'm promising you can point us to the proper goals of education? First of all, education has to be concerned with the pursuit of fundamental questions. Fundamental questions. Questions about uh, what a human being is, how a human being ought to live, and what the nature of the universe that a human being lives in is. Now, um, 
it's a very ancient dispute. Uh, what's a fundamental question and what's a trivial question? So we find critiques in uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, of uh, trivial approaches to education. Okay, wondering um, wh what's the heritage of this or that Greek god? Or how can the Greek gods be reduced to this or that fundamental natural principle? Uh, that's in Plato. Or uh, also in the Roman authors in Cicero and Seneca, they're very emphatic that extensive grammatical researches into all kinds of details uh, are not a worthy topic of study. Rather, what should be the topic of study is human life and how to live it at its best. These traditional uh, ancient distinctions between trivial and fundamental are taken up by Augustine, <clears throat> who in so many ways uh, is the, father, the intellectual father of the church um, in, in all of the breadth and depth of, of its traditions. Uh, and Augustine thought that learning was uh, ultimately for the sake of our union with God uh, and our full development as, as human beings who seek the truth and who take joy in the truth. Uh, and in order to pursue that, properly speaking, one has to distinguish fundamental questions from trivial questions. So it's fundamental questions is the way that I would formulate what Ashley is calling wisdom. That is, it's knowledge as it bears on what's essential in life. Um, the only caveat I would like to be to be make very clear is that I think that the pursuit of fundamental questions, including the pursuit of wisdom, has to involve not just ethical and moral inquiries, but also theoretical inquiries into, into mathematics and into the nature of the world. Um, that's just part of what a human being is, is someone who undertakes these kinds of activities. So I don't think that uh, inquiries into fundamental realities like mathematical reality or or scientific reality. I think these two are wisdom. Um, but I agree with Ashley that they they do. It is best when they're grounded in something which connects them to the other fundamental questions, which they are always in older texts, always, always connected. Um, it's a very uh, recent thing that someone would think that the investigation into the nature of the universe would involve setting aside any questions of metaphysics or any questions of theology. So uh, I think of these questions as being unified, but I also think that they're intrinsically connected. So if you if you follow one thread, you'll end up in in, in another sphere. Okay, I'm getting a little bit off topic here. So so uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fundamental principle that education should be the pursuit of fundamental questions. Um, one of the advantages of seeing things this way brings me to my second principle, which is that we have a natural passion. Individuals, human individuals have a natural passion to pursue fundamental questions. It doesn't need to be taught to them in a, a top-down way. Um, you don't need to, to shape a human being from the outside as someone who thinks fundamental questions. 
we all have fundamental questions, but uh, the reason why education is necessary in order to pursue them is because there are obstacles to their pursuit, interior obstacles and external obstacles. So uh, education does two things as far as this passion for the pursuit of fundamental questions is concerned. It uncovers it when it's hidden to us. We don't always know that we have a passion for fundamental questions. And secondly, uh, it permits that passion to develop. It gives the space for it to develop. Given that it's a natural passion, it's like a plant's natural urge to grow. You don't go out into the garden and make your plants grow. You don't set benchmarks that they have to meet to count as growing, but you do need to uncover the power of the plant to grow. That is, you have to recognize a seed, a, a desirable plant from a weed, etc., and you have to give it the conditions under which it's going to do the thing which it's naturally meant to do. Uh, the soil, the sun, the water, the food, um, the right kind of space. Uh, that's what education is like. It's uh, uncovering a certain possibility that we may not have known we had, a certain passion to learn and to understand the fundamentals of human life we need to uncover that and we need to give it space to develop, to provide the conditions under which it can develop. So we're pursuing fundamental questions, which include uh, what's traditionally called wisdom, uh, but uh, with, with, with Hitz's caveat that that has to also include uh, mathematical inquiry, scientific inquiry. Um, it's uh, this pursuit of fundamental questions is something that individuals are naturally driven from within to do. And so the principle of education is to uncover the passion and to give it the space to grow into what it already is. Um, it's an active, the pursuit of fundamental questions is something that an individual actively does. It's not something that an individual passively receives. It's, it's an activity um, which involves the use of, of every interesting and important human capacity. Okay, so uh, three, I'm a third of my, third of my five, uh, five principles of, uh, that indicate the goals of education. Uh, and it, this is actually not much of a goal. It's a little more of a means, but I think it's it's reveals something about the nature of the goal. Um, and that is that uh, great books are an excellent way to pursue fundamental questions. I don't say they're essential because um, if I think about the thinkers of the past, it didn't always start from books. So great books are an excellent way to pursue fundamental questions. If you look at the thinkers of the past, they didn't always use great books. Sometimes they used mathematical tools or they inquired into nature 
or they reflected or they had conversations with other human beings. Um, however, they're close to essential for us for the following reason. Um, they, um, they, what I, what I think makes a great book, a great book, as opposed to a pretty good book or an okay book or an interesting book is that it can educate, uh, a human being at any level. So a beginner, someone who is new to the world of inquiry can learn from a great book. Uh, someone in the middle can learn from a great book. Someone who's been studying for years and years and years and has a developed specialty, they too can learn from reading a great book. That's what makes a great book great. So uh, it, um, they're inexhaustible in two dimensions. In the dimension I just mentioned, that is, uh, no matter what level you are, there's always more to be learned from them. You never outgrow them. You never move on to the next thing. Uh, or your movement onto the next thing can all, the books can always be a part of that movement. Um, always be a part of that growth, uh, in, in understanding or in the pursuit of, of, of one's questions. Um, and they're inexhaustible in that, in that dimension, in terms of the depth and they're inexhaustible in breadth. That is, uh, a huge variety of individuals. I'm inclined to think any individual who can read can be a part of this type of learning. Uh, and that, uh, that's another level of inexhaustibility. So, like I say, I don't think it's technically essential, but if you know that there is such an educational tool out there, one that is inexhaustible in its depth and inexhaustible in its reach to human beings, then I think you'd be quite foolish not to make some use of it. Um, and the reason I, I'm pulling together in the last part of my talk, something that I think will clarify, I, I think all three of these principles that I've described so far, the pursuit of fundamental questions, uh, the, the, the naturalness of the passion for the pursuit of fundamental questions, uh, and the, the nature of great books. Um, and here in the last two, I think we'll start to get a glimpse of something like what the, um, what the unifying principles, even of the five principles is. So something like a, a, a look into what education is and can do. I, at least I hope, at least I feel that in my bones, whether or not I'm going to be able to put it into words or not, I don't know. Um, but so one really interesting feature of fundamental questions and inquiry into fundamental questions is because they're there's a natural passion for them because the pursuit of them is naturally satisfying. Uh, they are common ground between individuals of the same culture, no matter how different they might be from one another, and also individuals from widely different cultures. So the pursuit of fundamental questions is a bond of unity between one human being and another.
and between groups of human beings. It's a bond of unity and a source of friendship. So this is, I think, where something like multiculturalism comes in. Um, because these, this passion for understanding is, is natural to human beings, it's found in every culture, as Ashley takes some time and trouble to, to uh, tease out. Um, all of those cultures that are literate have books of this kind, wisdom literature. Um, and these books, because of their depth and their universality and their, their fundamental nature, are of interest to anyone even people who don't originally belong to that culture. That's something that I'm sure someone like Father Ashley has had experience of. It's something that certainly I've had experience of in my own teaching. I teach in a program that does, uh, that teaches great books that are uh, of what are, what are called Western with a capital W. I, I have my doubts about what Western really means, but um, they're from mostly from Europe and from North America or from the ancient Near East and were taken up by Europeans maybe North Africa, um, uh, but not a, not a wide, not the widest of geographic reaches. Um, but uh, we've had students, especially the past few years from all over the world, all over the world. Uh, and it's often those students who are most fascinated and captivated by these books, not because there's something special, I don't think necessarily about Europe and North America, but because these books uh, are effective means of inquiry into fundamental questions and tap into that basic human passion uh, and develop it. Uh, so uh, fundamental questions, uh, the naturalness of the passion of these questions, great books, the common ground that the pursuit of these questions creates opens up between individuals, including individuals of different cultures. Lastly, and I think this is actually most important. So sometimes people ask me what if I could do one thing, one thing to reform an educational institution, what would I do? And it's always the same thing that is to make the education at such an institution personal. That is, uh, education is person to person. So that might be the reduction of class size would be the technical way of referring to it in a, in a large university or in a school. But that's, that's really just a means to the end. Um, teaching and learning take place person to person. They cannot be scaled up. They cannot be undertaken on a mass level. They can be, um, there are certain skills that are usefully conveyed by video or by large lecture, um, but you're not really conveying the habits and the disciplines that are, not, that are needed to, um, to cultivate our natural passions. Okay, so the, the gardening aspect of the natural passion to learn and understand is serious. It takes discipline not any special kind of discipline, but we need to overcome uh, laziness. Um, we need to overcome superficiality. We need to overcome our desire for distraction. We as students, in order to pursue fundamental questions, 
that's how we get in touch with our natural passion. Uh, and in order to do that, we need on the one hand, um, uh, a, a social group that's doing the same thing. This is, this is a piece of wisdom that the military and religious orders have always known that if you want to do something difficult, if you're trying to tap into some difficult part of the human soul, um, you, you form a group, um, and that group does the same thing. And that social pressure that's generated there gives you the strength, uh, to do things that you would not ordinarily be able to do. Um, so that's one part of the discipline, uh, of, of cultivating the fundamental, the, the fundamental, the passion for fundamental questions. But the other part of it is that space, um, the space to uh, actively pursue one's inquiry. And that space has to be cultivated as something as close to individually as possible. It sounds crazy to those of us who work at large universities, and I used to work at one, and I, I remember what it was like. But I think if you think, it's actually quite available to us to think that uh, if you think about how you might want to learn piano, or how you might want to learn karate, or how you might want to learn to sing, or how you might want to learn to play football, you would have a personal mentor, someone who was an excellent practitioner of the, the virtues and habits that you wanted to adopt. Um, and you would work closely with that person so that, that you could imitate them and that they could observe you and notice what you did, um, offer feedback, criticism and encouragement. This is just how habits and practices and virtues are passed on um, in more or less any field of inquiry. It's also recognized in our educational institutions by the highest level, the research level. Uh, mentoring is still widely practiced, right? You work for a lab under a scientist, you study English for your PhD under an English professor. There's one person who's advising you and guiding you. But I think there's something very perverse about the fact that a person can these days go through years and years of education with uh, mentoring undertaken more or less randomly because some teacher who happened to know that that was the right way to do things happened to take the trouble and end up well on in life without necessarily having acquired the habits and the virtues that are necessary. Okay, so um, I've now finished more or less my, 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 my five principles which suggest the goal of education. Uh, it's the pursuit of fundamental questions. It's, uh, there's a natural passion for this pursuit. This natural passion needs to be cultivated, needs to be uncovered, needs to be recognized for what it is, and it needs to be given the space to develop. And I've also suggested and what I just said in the last part, that there are two obvious ways or two clear ways of doing that. One is by forming a group where everyone's doing the same thing in order to provide the motivation, the pressure to overcome our, our laziness, our tendencies to boredom, our uh, tendencies to be too easily satisfied with ourselves, our, uh, our, our tendencies to get distracted or to be superficial or to seek praise or to be merely competitive. So we need this group, but we also need um, 
mentoring. We need to see and work with other human beings who have experience in the pursuit of the particular type of fundamental questions we have to be doing, and we need to be taught by them, uh, taught by them person to person, um, however that pans out in a particular institution or in a particular circumstance. Uh, so fundamental questions, the natural passion, um, which needs to be both uncovered and permitted, great books. Uh, these, the pursuit of this question creates common ground for individuals, so it builds uh, naturally uh, bonds between peoples and cultures. Uh, and one thing that I'll just say in, in, in by the way of uh, conclusion to wrap up, and which might help to give some perspective on where these ideas are coming from, where I'm really coming from in, in arguing this way. It seems to me that the educational vice of our age is not any particular set of ideas. It's authoritarianism. So it's the design of educational programs by a few people who uh, judge themselves and are judged by others to be especially qualified to do so. So it's not uh, ideas so much as it is uh, a structure of power, a, a way that power is organized in educational contexts. And so for me, what's fundamental is to resist the managerial impulse of designing educational programs that are perfect from the top down that we think will develop the kinds of human beings that we think need to be developed. And rather to um, unite with one another on the grounds of what we have in common, what's fundamental, what's shared, um, what's shared between people of faith, what's shared between people without faith, what's shared between people of Christian faiths and other faiths, to gather together on those shared principles in the spirit of cooperation, collaboration, and mutual understanding. And it's on this basis that real education has to be built. And I, I can't conclude, even though I'm a, I think I still have a two minutes so my allotted time, uh, one or two. Um, there's one neglected topic, which I'll just point to, and then you can ask whatever you'd like in the question period. You might wonder what role faith has in this scheme that I've outlined, because I have made no reference to it. Um, I've made no reference to it because I believe that the level at which I'm talking is the level at which learning is what's called in the Catholic faith, a natural good, a human good, uh, for which there is a natural human desire or natural human impulse. Now it's uh, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, which I think is uh, fundamental, which I think about more or less all the time, ever since I started to understand it, that grace builds on nature. So it's, we don't instill grace. We don't instill faith. We don't make faithful humans. We receive faith as a gift. We pray for faith when it fails us. And we uh, appeal to it at all times in whatever we do. And if what we are doing is uh, helping human beings to fulfill their destinies as, as thinking and learning and reflecting beings, um, what, whatever needs to happen will follow of its own accord. Uh, that's what I think grace building on nature means. So uh, I think formulating these things in terms of the natural goods, the shared goods, the human goods is crucial 
for our own understanding and for our connections with others. But I'm not trying to rule out faith. I'm trying rather to open the door to faith in the way that I think traditionally always has been opened. Anyway, uh, I'm going to end my remarks there and um, hope that you guys have lots of questions. Okay, thank you. So thank you for that very thought-provoking lecture. Um, so I have a question uh, and a comment. Uh, the comment really has to do with Father Ashley's vision of education, which I know you didn't try to tackle in, um, in your lecture, which is fine. Um, but I'll just say that to, to those who, who have, uh, you know, survived reading all the way through Father Ashley's book. It, to me, the most puzzling aspect of it is his ability to recommend things that seem to me to be impossible. For example, uh, teaching science uh, by incorporating the question of immaterial forces or immaterial entities. Uh, in that, being, being an astronomer and a physicist, uh, obviously that's difficult. The question for you is how to implement what you are recommending in the context of higher education today. My institution, Cornell, the, the motto is uh, any person, any study, uh, which you know basically sounds like a free-for-all. At some level it is. But we have 24,000 students and we have 1,600 faculty on the on the Ithaca campus, and so um, you know, a personal education can be achieved at some point, uh, at some times in student careers. Um, undergraduate research is an obvious example of that, but we still, of necessity, have these large lectures, and um, and of course, the kinds of courses that are taught are extremely diverse. So, do you have any comment about that? I, I mean, it seems to me you're almost advocating a, a bifurcation between very, very small colleges which can do the sort of thing you're describing and the large universities which seem structurally incapable of implementing that vision. Well, thank you for that question because it helps me to, um, because I too, I, I, I read the Ashley chapter and I thought, what planet is the sky on? This is all totally impossible. Um, and I think what I'm, advocating for is something which um, is very difficult rather than impossible, but maybe it's just two modes of impossibility and you, you can be the judge. Here's the thing that part of what um, the difficulty is in thinking about these things and formulating them is that the crisis in education seems to be very grave, very serious, very large scale and to, to go to uh, the top to the bottom. And it's not just uh, a crisis in education judged as a Catholic, it's a crisis of education that virtually everyone recognizes. Um, so uh, something is going deeply wrong. And on the one hand, if you, if you have a, a simple feasible solution, uh, you know, I don't know what that would be. <laughs> um, but uh, imagine there were something that you could just you know, a special magic dust that you could sprinkle over every classroom in the United States and North, and North America and Europe and everywhere else where this crisis is underway. Um, and somehow learning would take place. Um, I would think that that would run the risk of not uh, getting to whatever the fundamentals of the problem is. I think the fundamentals of the problem really are this question of scale. 
Um, I think that's one of the reasons that explains why the the um, the educational problems have gotten steadily worse as they've gotten more and more scaled up by um, the actions by the the, the seen necessities of administrators. Um, they need to get more revenue. Um, they uh, the price of salaries remains fixed while everything else becomes cheaper. Uh, so there's all this economic pressure um, to towards uh, increasing class size, increase so so raising the scale. But in fact, you're 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 not able to transmit um, the kinds of uh, habits and virtues that education is constituted by. Now, this is specifically, it's it's ex particularly crucial for the humanities, which of course is where I come from in classics and philosophy. Um, to me, it, it seems pretty clear that the, the reason why enrollments are, are plummeting in the humanities is not because uh, students aren't interested in it, but because they don't know they're interested in it, because that type of education just does not scale up. No one wants to go to a 500 person lecture on Shakespeare. What they want to do is talk about Shakespeare with at most 15 to 20 other people and a professor who really loves it, where you can see into the professor's mind, you know, what they know, what they remember, what they care about, how they read, how they see, how they think. That is electrifying. Uh, and people love that type of education, but they're not being offered that at most universities. So as to the question about what happens at a place like Cornell, I think, again, the advantage of a recommendation like this is um, maybe there's something you can do in your classes to make it more personal. Maybe there's pressure you can exert on your department chairs to um, provide some uh, avenues for more personal contact. Uh, the more personal contact, the better. It's, it, it scales right back in the other direction. <laughs> Or lastly, and uh, you know, thanks to my work, I hear from many, many people who are disaffected with academia. Uh, either they're embittered by the way things are going, they feel like they've lost touch with, with the purposes of their education, or um, they can't, because it's gotten so tight uh, economically, they can't get in. They're very talented people, but either they can't get into, they can't get jobs, or these days they can't even get into a graduate program. Um, and what do they do? Well, you know, the, we, we need to be start thinking about what, what kinds of institutions um, might um, be do some of the things a university does without being universities and where that, that kind of scale, the personal scale can be kept. So that's just a few ideas. It's, it's meant to be a principle which can be adapted to circumstances. Um, but there are significant pressures against doing that. But you have to, if you want, if you if you are persuaded as I am that um, this is just necessary for education, then you have to find a way to do it. I mean, I left research academia for for this reason. I could no longer, in conscience, teach these huge classes that were philosophy classes. I had to teach someplace small. But for different people, it will mean different things, and different possibilities will become available to you depending on, on who you are, where you work what kind of work you do. I hope that's helpful. It's, um, it's, it's meant to be a possible impossibility, not an impossible one, but uh, I know it can feel impossible. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. That was an awesome question. Certainly, uh, certainly a lot to think about. Uh, we will go to our next question. Uh, Sadie, if you'd like to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question. 
Amazing. Um, my name is actually Sade, very similar to the singer. I first want to say thank you so much to Professor Hitz. I have read your book, Hidden Knowledge of the Intellectual Life, and I was very, very moved by it. So this question is partly inspired by that. Leo Strauss wrote in his liberal education, he wrote, liberal education consists of listening to the conversation among the greatest minds. Liberal education, which consists in constant intercourse with the greatest minds, is a training in the highest form of modesty to experience in, beautiful, in things beautiful. My question to you, Professor, given your book on the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life and Strauss's words, how do students maintain their cultivation in a society that doesn't value knowledge or rather wisdom in the immediate sense? Well, um, the, the short answer is that you have to do it anyway. It's kind of a, maybe that's... <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, I'm trying, we're trying out here. But you, the, the key thing is, to, is to, to do it anyway, but of course to seek out support in doing it. And um, it may be a bit of a, a privilege of my position having written a book that, that people, I, I hear about these things, but th there's always more people than you think. So I think the thing about a, a social pressure or, or what, what society values or doesn't value there's a reality there and then there's also a perception and the perception is often more stringent than the reality is i think the fact is again most people if you scratch the surface they're they're really interested in this kind of thing maybe they don't know what it is maybe they've never experienced it but um a certain kind of evangelism about it i think is in order and but that's even after you've done the work of finding the people in your community who are interested in this. And I guarantee you there are, I'm sure you've already found them probably through Domestic Institute or, or something similar, um, or through the right, you know, the a handful of teachers who might be on campus. Um, but you- Well, I guess I might push yeah. back a little bit because here I'm not really thinking about a societal pressure, but let's take Pythagoras. He is taught in middle schools, high schools, and is like, it's fundamental to the mathematical representation of the cosmos. but in his time, he was not seen as that and his knowledge and the value there was not seen. So how does our society actually value knowledge when knowledge is actually not seen until centuries down the road? Okay, I don't think I'd understood that that was the question. Um, interesting. So the thought is that maybe knowledge is never really valued. Yeah by society. And so what do we do in light of that? Exactly. Uh, That's how I feel too. <laughs> you, could, you could take a, you could take a page out of Pythagoras's book. I mean, I'm actually a fan of uh, openness, but um, you know, he formed a secret society, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So did C.S. Lewis so and J.R.L. Tolkien. You could, so, yeah. You could form a society, whether it's a secret or open, has, has an open door, closed door. I mean, I, again, I prefer the open door, um, but it's not essential, I don't think. Um, mm. And uh, I, I honestly think that, that f forming a network, whether it's small or large, of people who care about it, um, it may not be everything, but it's it's actually most of what you need, if not all of it. Uh, and and I guarantee you, I guarantee you 100% there, you you can find people, uh, and the the um, and then can just continue to reflect on on what what the nature of this conflict between the public 
and knowledge is. I mean, Strauss has one version of it. I think Christian thinkers might have another. Um, and maybe none of those things is quite right, but there's obviously some tension. So what, mm. try to think about what's at the bottom of that. Is that I don't think that's really obvious at all. What, why, should, mm. why should human beings in large groups be hostile to the best thing they can do? That seems really weird. <laughs> I like that answer. No, I think that that was, that was really helpful. And it goes back to what you said about forming a group of shared principles. So I, I thank you. I really appreciate that. No problem. Yeah. Thank you for your question. That was great. And thank you for your answer, Dr. Hitz. Uh, we are going to now switch over to the chat. Uh, so a uh, question from the chat. Uh, it seems to be a bit of a two-part question, and it might be a doozy, so we'll see how much we can, uh, we can tackle. So the question is, it seems that the pursuit of fundamental questions is not the goal of education. For one, certain aspects of education are not directly ordered to the pursuit of fundamental questions, such as gymnastics, music, learning a trade. Also, this pursuit does not seem to be accessible to all, and maybe not to even a majority of people, but should all be educated according to their capacity? So I'm happy to read one part of the other again for you. Uh, I might need the second part again, but let me answer the first part first while it's fresh in my mind. So that's that's fabulous. Thank you. Uh, that's a brilliant question. Um, okay, so I think I should say uh, you're right. Uh, all education is not about the pursuit of fundamental questions. Um, and maybe the pursuit of fundamental questions is, um, I was hedging a bit like on this during the talk because I realized while I was talking that something was up. Um, maybe it's not the goal, um, but a extremely effective means to the goal. And the goal is something like one's growth and development as a human being. So, um, uh, and that fits with the gardening image. So I think that will get me out of gymnastics and music. Music, I think, is tough. I, I struggle with music because, um, not because I don't love it, but because I don't really fully understand what the human good connected to music is. <laughs> I've never understood it. Someday I hope I'll understand it. Um, but I don't know how to think of it in such a way that, I mean, I, I can say something very basic and simple, like to be musical is just part of being a, a happy, flourishing human being, but I, that feels a little boilerplate. I don't really know how to go past that. So I think there are some, um, some human practices who's, who's, uh, who we recognize as contributing to our growth and our development, but whose uh, essential value is not clear. I think music might be one of them. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to clarify. Now, tell me the second part of the question again. I guess the second one, we'll have to watch our time here, but uh, the, uh, the second one is that um, education, should it be uh, for all people? We do have to balance that. We do have to provide for, for families, you know, we don't all have the, the, the luxury. So to what level uh, is the pursuit of fundamental questions accessible to all people and should it be accessible to all people? Okay, so this question is dear to my heart. Yeah, so I, um, I actually think it should be, and I think it is basically accessible to all people. So you, there's different, um, uh, 
pursuing fundamental questions is good for individuals. It's good for individuals to develop and to grow to the extent that they are capable of, of developing and growing. And the pursuit of fundamental questions does that. Um, so achievement is not required. Achievement's great. I mean, without achievement, we wouldn't have these wonderful great authors or you know, brilliant scientists and mathematicians and so on and great teachers. So achievement is wonderful as a means of service, but you, 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 can, you can pursue fundamental questions in the space that's left in your mind while you're doing manual labor or in the, in the 10 minutes while you're waiting in between taxi gigs, you know, you're, you've, you know, you've got one call and then you've got another call. Um, you can think and reflect in, in little spots in a day. Um, if you have even an hour of free time a day, you can read and study and think and, and engage in conversations. People find all kinds of, of time for all kinds of practices. And um, this is a really important one. And it's important for everyone. Um, and it's important regardless of the, um, what you might call the degree of achievement or the degree of excellence. We're much too focused on that in our thinking about these things. So.